You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the ever merciful. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to the breakfast show and thank you for joining us. You are joined by myself Jalis Ahmed and Daniel Ahmed. And we will, God willing, be with you throughout the breakfast show. Now, as always in our breakfast show, we have three topics that we cover on Tuesdays. In the first segment, we will be talking about International Mother Language Day. And then moving on into the second hour. So the first half of the second hour, we will be talking about folic acid requirements for expectant mothers. And then in the second and se- uh, second half of the, th- uh, the, th- the third segment, which will be in the second half of the show, is celebrating achievements in women's sport ahead of the 2023 uh, 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup and uh, we will God willing be with you throughout the whole show entire show and we will be giving the Islamic aspect of these segments as well um, before we do get into the news headlines and the weather of course uh, Daniel how are you doing today Alhamdulillah I'm doing good how are you doing By yes yourself? Alhamdulillah I am very good today you know it was quite cold today as well um as it has been for this month um but you know slowly slowly i think um we are moving um you know we, we're adapting to the cold of course you know uh, february has been a very cold uh month um you know speaking of weather yeah. if we move straight to the <coughs> weather what is the forecast looking like so regarding the weather so uh, about today's um, today will be rather cloudy day with a very little in the way of sunshine it will remain dry for many and it will be another mild day for the time of year uh, guarding tonight uh, it will be st- um, uh, tonight will be start dry and cloudy uh, but through the early hours of the morning some scattered showers will move in from the south it will be another mild night and for tomorrow, uh, it will be uh, it will have a cloudy start with outbreaks of rain during the morning. The rain will clear in the afternoon, but it will stay overcast with a few lingering showers. And just for our um, for outlook for Thursday and to Saturday, Thursday will be mainly dry and cool with plenty of sunshine. Uh, and throughout the day, once uh, any early showers clear. Friday will see sunny spells uh, to start the day, but scattered showers will develop during the afternoon. Saturday will start with variable cloud and a few brighter spells. Similar conditions in the afternoon with the risk of a few light showers. Um, That was a brief uh, summary of uh, the weather and the forecast. Um, As it is our custom, now we will move to the news, the headlines uh, or the papers. And um, um, it says that 
the papers from the BBC says that Tuesday's papers are dominated by news of the formal identification of Nicola Bully. Uh, her family said officers have had confirmed their worst fears when the mother of two was found on the banks of Lancashire River on Sunday, more than three weeks after going missing, the Daily Mail reports. Uh, Nikki, we can let you rest now, is the Daily Mail's headline reflecting their grief. Mm. Uh, the Mirror also carries the tribute from Miss Bully's family. We will never forget Nikki. She was the centre of our world, quote unquote. The Sun describes the tributes as poignant and features a smiling Mrs. Bully on its front page. The Express carries more from that tribute. The paper reports that her relatives admitted they would never be able to comprehend what Nikki had gone through in her last moments and that would never leave us, quote unquote. Mrs. Bully's family also criticised um, parts of the UK media following the discovery of her body. In a statement read on behalf of the family, um, they claim uh, that some members of the press misquoted and vilified their friends and family. The I newspaper reports the statement also took aim to ITV and Sky News, who the family said made contact with them. When we, exp when we expressively asked for privacy, the paper says, uh, the BBC understands Sky News had an open dialogue with Miss Bully's family since she was reported missing. The BBC has approached ITV for a comment. US President Joe Biden's surprise visit to the Ukraine capital, Kyiv, also features prominently on many of Tuesday's front pages. The FT, so that's the Financial Times, reports on Mr. Biden's unwavering support, quote unquote, for the embattled nation as he announced a further $500 million in military aid. The Daily Telegraph features an image of Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky and Joe Biden um, embracing one another on its front page, but its main story is on comments made by former Prime Ministers Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, who are both arguing their successor Rishi Sunak uh, to send fighter jets to Ukraine. In her first intervention in the House of Commons since resigning as Prime Minister, Mrs. Um, Truss said she could not wait to see fighter jets over Ukraine, the paper reports. The Times also features stories on the Nicola Bully case and Biden's visit to Ukraine. But its main story is on reports some ministers are prepared to resign from Rishi Sunak's government over his, breakfast, uh, over his Brexit deal if it risks Northern Ireland's place within the UK. The paper says there is a mounting backlash among Eurosceptic Conservative MPs to the deal. The Guardian turns its attention to the inquest of the victims of the Plymouth shootings. Uh, Plymouth shootings. The inquest jury found uh, catastrophic failings allowed the gunman Jake Davidson to legally possess a shotgun that he used to kill five people in August 2021. Senior police officers, families of the victims, and anti-gun campaigners are calling for a ra uh, radical reform. 
of the firearms licensing system, the paper says. Junior doctors have voted overwhelmingly to Britain's growing wave of strikes, the Metro reports. Out of 37,000 British Medical Association members who voted, 98% backed their first industrial action since 2016, the paper says. A 72-hour walkout is being planned in their fight for a 26% pay rise, the paper says. And the Daily Star leads with the role of publishing changes made to the children's author, Roald Dahl's books. The Prime Minister has weighed in with his, spoke, with his spokesman uh, saying wrote of fiction should be preserved, not airbrushed. Battle of the BFGs is how the star frames the debate. Yeah, so there's a, a lot that's going on in the headlines uh, today. And um, so, Daniel, did you did you find anything interesting, uh, you know, in this headline, in these headlines, or maybe in a news that you have read in the past week or so? Um, there was some news I, I was reading uh, this morning and which caught my eye, and um, um, there was something specifically regarding the earthquake, and um, yep. So <coughs> there was uh, <coughs> sorry. So, um, in Turkey, Syria earthquake, a uh, baby pulled out from the rubble, reunited with aunt and uncle. So, the BBC report says that a baby born under, under the rubble of a collapsed building in Syria and the only member of her immediate family to survive a massive, massive earthquake has been adopted by her aunt and uncle. Thousands of people had uh, offered to adopt the newborn was still connected to her mother by her umbilical cord when she was rescued. She was discharged from hospital after a DNA test confirmed her aunt was a blood relative. Doctors said she was in a good health. She is one of my children now, her uncle by marriage Khalil al-Sawadi told the Associated Press News Agency. I will not differentiate between uh, her and my children the baby has now uh, been named after her late mother, Afra. Shortly after she was rescued, officials had named her Aya, which means miracle in Arabic. That's really amazing to you know uh, know mm. the, and it um, you know tells the also tells you the uh, eloquency and uh, the in depth of um, and the profoundness of Arabic as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, says. Uh, further, it says that a video of her rescue shortly after the tremor went viral on social media. Uh, dramatic footage showed a man sprinting away from the debris as he carried her covered in dust in his arms. She had reportedly been under the collapsed building for more than 10 hours and doctors said she had arrived into a hospital in a bad condition with bruises and cuts all over her body. The building in which he, in which her family lived, was one of about 50 reportedly destroyed by a 7.8 magnitude earthquake in um, in Jindaris, an opposition-held town in Idlib province that is close to the Turkish border. So that was the news which caught my eye, and it reminded me also the very beautiful saying of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He said that. Um, in in heaven, 
myself and the caretaker of an orphan will be like uh, this and by this he means he held his uh, two fingers together and he said that we will be the caretaker of the orphan and myself will be like this close to uh, in in heaven so this is the status which uh, the holy prophet uh, peace and blessing Allah be upon him has given to the caretaker of an orphan and it's it is such a blessing and um, uh, we can see around in our society as well that uh, you know there are many orphans uh, uh, whose future you know wholly depends on the on the society as well on their relatives on on other people as well mm. who doesn't know how to survive uh, in the society so by by looking at this beautiful saying of the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam may peace and blessing Allah be upon him uh, we can understand and we can you know inculcate such uh, such a thing in in ourselves as well hmm. indeed indeed yep. i mean uh, islam being the, the you know the perfect religion it also takes care of you know every um thing that can happen in someone's life and you know uh, just like you you know mentioned that um, taking care of an orphan is one of those deeds which are really you know which the holy prophet himself he, he like you said he said he he, he very much um, appreciated and he, he said you know that this is something that Muslims should also look at as well especially when you narrated the, uh, the, the narration um, the hadith of the Holy Prophet Muhammad may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him that you know the caretaker of an orphan just like you said would be uh, close to the Holy Prophet in heaven as well and you know that is as Muslims you know this is what we, we strive for you know God's love and we, we, we strive for, you know, his messenger's uh, love and we, we strive to follow his messenger in everything that he has uh, told us. And, you know, there's um, in the news uh, earlier this month, I saw, I read a news. Uh, it was by Sky News. Um, they released a, a news. The title of the news was, <coughs> excuse me, the title of the news was, God is neither male nor female quote unquote and then the church church of england is considering gender neutral terms so this was the title of the news mm-hmm. uh, that sky news um reported uh, published and you know, the report read that um the and i quote that the church of england is considering whether to stop referring to god as he after questions concerning the use of gender neutral terms were raised by the priests now you know, I'm sure uh, this news caught many people's eye, and um, I thought, you know, uh, as as a Muslim, I thought it was important, you know, just to for me, just to give like an a, an Islamic background um, of this matter, and you know, so in Islam, you know, we believe that God is n- uh, neither male nor female, mm-hmm. you know, He has uh, no gender. Uh, however, you know, it is sometimes asked uh, why. Uh, the masculine pronoun is used for God and not the female pronoun. Mm. And, you know, we must remember, however, that this question has, you know, it's got less to do with religion and more to do with uh, language. Mm. Uh, You know, first and foremost, as Muslims, you know, we believe that the Holy Quran was revealed to the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. It was revealed to him by Allah, by God. And it was God who chose to use the word and in the, the, the Holy Quran in the Arabic, 
huwa is the masculine pronoun so he chose to use he and as muslims we submit to his will alone but um so that's as what we muslims believe however the question it still lingers it still remains in people's minds as to why one should use the masculine pronoun well i mean or why the masculine pronoun is used well the answer is to put it very briefly uh, we must look at linguistics and see what is on the other side because like i said before this question has more to do with language than to do with religion you know so uh, um in a, in arabic so because the holy quran was revealed to in to the holy prophet in arabic we see that in addition to referring to someone with you know um someone we something we know is male mm. the masculine pronoun in arabic is also used for objects or, or individuals who are yet um unknown mm. for instance um in a scenario where the gender of or of a doctor has not been specified to the patient the masculine pronoun may be used to refer to that doctor now uh, for instance consider and i'll just give an example consider the case of um tom and uh, harry um you know so for example if tom has a doctor's appointment uh and goes to the hospital you know he may ask um, he may ask harry about the doctor and in arabic we would say man al tabib that meaning who is the doctor mm. now since the gender of the doctor has not been established to tom the masculine pronoun is used so this is because the masculine pronoun is the default form in arabic and you know to make a word feminine a, a suffix um is added for example for the word tabib which is doctor the 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 it will become tabiba uh, who which means a female doctor uh, and um you know as a general rule of thumb it is important to remember that in arabic the you know the masculine pronoun is typically used while the female pronoun is used only when it's necessary and uh, so you know this this news it did catch my eye and i'm sure it did catch many other people's uh, attention as well and i just thought you know it it's it will be important to give you know a little islamic background to uh, to why why uh, to what muslims believe and uh, a little um of what arabic also says um as well and um one thing that we must understand that uh, you know god is beyond any gender you know his his understand uh, understanding we must understand th- the limitations of language because we uh, god being you know above any gender um the holy quran says that you know laysa kamithlihi shay that you know there is nothing um uh, uh, whatever like uh, like him there is there is nothing like him he is he is one and there is nothing like him and <clears throat> you know um we just only time will tell you know where this debate takes us you know uh, of the 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 sky news report that i mentioned where they are considering changing gender were considering using uh, considering gender neutral terms so only time would will tell what happens but um you know it was important obviously to give the islamic background uh, more of more more of the arabic background and what the holy quran um says yeah um very beautifully explained um, regarding um arabic language as well and um, as as i have mentioned as well the um, Uh, report of uh, of orphan uh, 
and was adopted by her aunt and uncle. Her, her name is Aya, which means mm. miracle. Yeah. And that's very beautiful, yeah? Yeah. Uh, to know that how beautifully it explains and gives the, you know, whole scenario of the situation as well. And, uh, yeah, um, <coughs> there's one more news which caught my eye, eye as well. Uh, it says that grammar schools still failing to boast number of poor people. Um, a quarter of England's uh, state grammar schools still let in hardly any poor children, despite most trying to improve their admissions um, policies, according to BBC analysis. <coughs> uh, out of 160 grammar schools, 112 now have uh, quotas or give high priority to disadvantaged children and the impact is patchy. A leading academic says some appear to have made only a token effort. The government says it's reviewing <coughs> how to make it's reviewing how to make grammars more inclusive and the concern that grammar schools have become the preserve of better of families has led to pressure for change. Um, grammars educate just 5% of secondary uh, pupils in England, but their existence in local areas uh, affect more than just the pupil who got there. For every grammar school um, um, pupil, Roughly three more go to nearby secondary <coughs> modern school. There's evidence that these children do less uh, less well at GCSEs level than those pupils in area uh, where there's no uh, grammar schools, only comprehensives. The latest BBC anal uh, analysis found that in the quarter of the 160 grammar schools, fewer than 5% of children were eligible for people <coughs> premium sport which is linked to free school meals and used as a measure of disadvantage. Um, in contrast, only 13 of the more than 3,000 other state secondary schools across all of England have such a low level of pupils from the poorest families. Seven years ago, the BBC found that most grammar schools did not have policies aimed at making it easier for children from the poorest families to get a place. <coughs> so that was the news, um, another new piece of article. And uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of very sad uh, to know that um, people from poorer families are not getting into uh, grammar schools. Uh, uh, they have the equal right as well. They, mm. have the, uh, they should be given the equal opportunity as well. And we also were going to talk about in our thirds, uh, third or second segment as well about the equality of uh, women's right as well. And it's pretty much linked to that topic as well. Uh, it's about, in general, if we talk about this, it is about equality, yeah. uh, equal giving equal rights and equal opportunities. Hmm. So, uh, Jalees, do you want to say anything? Uh, yeah, so I think that sums up the news of the first half of the um, first hour. Of course, if you do want to get in contact with us, <coughs> then you may call us 0208-687-7878. That's 0208-687-7878. Or if you like, you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And now we will take a short break. And after a short break, we will join you guys um, with our first segment uh, which is about International Mother Language Day. Uh, see you after a short break.
عن عمرو بن شعيب رضي الله عنه عن أبيه عن جده قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إن الله يحب أن يرى أثر نعمته على عبده It is narrated by Hazrat Amr bin Shuhayb anhu from his father from his grandfather who reported the Holy Prophet stated Indeed Allah loves to see the results of his favors upon his servant. His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, the present head of the community, continues in his effort to unite people from all faiths and cultures by promoting interfaith dialogue and religious freedom. He has traveled extensively to spread the message of peace and to remind everyone to respect the rights of other human beings. During these tours, His Holiness has met world leaders from the Far East to Europe, from North America to Africa, discussing the economic, social and political problems facing the world today and how to create peace and justice in the world. He has also met religious and community leaders in order to share common values and core ideals universal to all religions and cultures with a view to improving the moral state of mankind and creating an atmosphere of love and affection. From young to old, he compassionately listens to the ordinary man, regardless of race, color or religion. He has personally initiated social projects and schemes to alleviate poverty and human suffering. His concern is not just about the well-being and moral state of the members of the Ahmadiyya community, but of the great human suffering of mankind at large. The Ahmadiyya community knows only that Islam, which is the Islam of love and affection, offers a real message of peace and security. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Welcome back, Tuesday morning breakfast show with myself, Kayum, brother Jalees, and brother Daniel. Yes, this is me. And yes, I am late and I want to apologize to my brothers live on air. What a terrible example to set for my young brothers here. But it is what it is. Um, you know, if I'm going to make an apology, it has to be done online. It has to be done on air. Uh, and uh, I've done that. But on to our first segment of the morning. We are talking about International Mother Language Day. Um, Brother Daniel, what's the gist of the story? What are we talking about this morning? Oh, sorry. So the gist of the story is 
um, that um, nowadays the children of migrants are increasing increasingly out of touch and with their own culture so much so that they no longer adopt uh, and practice their own mother tongue in the world there is also a decrease in multilingual uh, multilingualism uh, due to a varying number of reasons the show will focus on keeping decades old language preserved as well as encouraging people to pick up their own mother language and perhaps even another language for a multitude of benefits so that was the gist of the story which we are going to talk about today um international mother language day and why it is important to know your own mother language um, what's your take on this gentlemen uh <coughs> sorry excuse me um just the the background of uh i think it's important to know the background of course of this as well is that international mother language day was proclaimed by the general conference of unesco in november 1999 you know the idea to uh, celebrate international mother language day was in fact the initiative of uh, bangladesh and you know international mother day uh, international mother language day sorry is uh, celebrated on the 21st of february which is obviously today and one important thing i think which is uh, it's crucial to mention is that globally uh, 40% of the population does not have access to an education in a language they speak or understand so that's 40% that's a very very high number it is most most definitely what are your mother languages what's your what's uh, your mother my tongue? mother language is urdu and same likewise urdu and what what are you more comfortable with um with urdu urdu no yeah. english nope you with my family uh, of course in urdu um and obviously uh, with my friends Uh, and because obviously in school we've been brought up to speak English, so I've been I've been more comfortable speaking in English with my friends. But of course with family, it's always Urdu. Amazing. Now I'm born yeah. and bred Londoner. Yeah. So London is, but I have studied. I have lived in Pakistan, so for a brief period. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Urdu is a beautiful language. Indeed. It's a very Indeed. deep language, very uh, full of emotion. Yeah. And uh, and. Uh, you can say there are so many things you can say in urdu which is maybe a word and it will take a paragraph in english to describe it yeah yeah which yeah, which shows the depth of the language yeah. but yes um um i would say english urdu both equally yeah. um mother language i suppose i mean would you say that uh, a mother tongue is some uh, would be described as a language which <laughs> you were born into kind of culturally I would say so yes so of course uh looking at the word mother tongue I would assume exactly that it's the language that your mother would speak, speak. and uh, the mother that the, the language that your mother would raise you in hmm. uh, whether that be uh, any language in the world where urdu farsi arabic english uh, persian uh, persian uh, which is farsi but persian french german any language any language that your mother has raised you in would be um I assume it would be your mother language most definitely um you know it's uh, in persian and it's it's strange how languages get created from other languages yeah indeed you mentioned persian persian urdu yeah very yeah very similar, very similar. there's a lot of similarities um but it's something i think we'll come back to later on as well um you know we are talking about mother language yeah and it's worth mentioning that uh, our belief mm. is that the mother of all languages yeah is arabic, arabic yeah, yeah. because if you look at 
even mm-hmm. modern day languages, there are so many words in modern day languages mm. that derive from Arabic words. Yeah. But that's another program to be had. Today yeah, we're really. talking about mother tongue. That is, that is. Um, what do you think are advantages of, of knowing? I mean, we, we, live in, we live in this country where we live in London, one of the most diverse cities in the world. Mm. So many different languages get spoken. What do you guys think are the advantages of I think, knowing? I think uh, you get uh, to know each other. That, that's one of the main advantages of uh, knowing another language. Uh, you get to know each other, uh, um, others' culture as well. And the way they kind of live into into society, you know, the society's uh, norms and cultures and get to know each other. That's the best thing you can do. And, uh, you know, the feeling of uh, uh, mingling with each other, uh, you know, circles is one of the best feelings you can have. Um, because sometimes, you know, you kind of when you live into a s- small circle, you, you think that this is the only word you, you have. But when you get out of your um, your your comfort zone or uh, speak in other languages and communicate with uh, with other pe- people in other languages, you get to know the beauty beauties of different languages. Uh, because, uh, for example, Chinese. I will take Chinese. Mm-hmm. It is very different from other languages. It is. It is written differently, and um, you know there are no alphabets in Chinese. Uh, it's it's the pictures in Chinese, so you know it's very kind of very fascinating to me as well uh, when I study other when I try to study other languages. One of the beauties of knowing um, other languages is that it opens up doors to new cultures. It opens up doors to know people from different walks of life, um, and it is very important because the Promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, on whom be peace. He said, it is very important to understand your mother tongue. He said, when you offer your prayer, besides the verses of the Holy Quran, which are the word of God, make all of your entities in your native language so that the humility and meekness that they are born of may touch your heart. So profound. Indeed. That the one of the the greatest benefits of knowing and speaking uh, your mother tongue is to it enables you to get more friendly with god indeed yeah. yeah because the whole point of god almighty and praying is to make sure you god is your best friend yeah and when you speak to your best friend Mm. you would speak to them in the language which you are most comfortable yeah, with. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. In the language and you can express yourself exactly. more as well. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it, is, um, it, is, it, it is so important to, to make sure that you do communicate in the language that, uh, that, that, uh, you, uh, that you feel more, 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 most comfortable in. We are told that speaking to God Almighty in prayer in our own language is actually very much encouraged encouraged and brings about humility and passion um, in expressing our feelings to God Almighty, like you just said, brother, that, uh, you know, your genuine self, um, you know, if there's one uh, being that you cannot hide away from is God Almighty, because God Almighty knows you better than you. Indeed. So why not be who you are and speak in the language that you are most comfortable with? Indeed. What do you think are other benefits of of knowing languages? I would say one of the um, one main benefit is a uh, having a cultural identity. 
um, you know, having a cultural identity is one of the main benefits. Um, our mother tongue is integral part of our culture, uh, identity, and it, it helps us connect with our heritage, our traditions, you know, our values. And it's uh, it's all about, you know, cultural identity is so important to a person. Even in Islam, we say, man arafa nafsahu, arafa rabbahu, that whoever knows himself, you know, he knows his Lord. Hmm. And you know, in with with like you mentioned before, there's a better communication as well if you know your mother tongue, uh, mother uh, mother tongue, and uh, knowing your mother tongue can also make it you know easier to uh, communicate with family members, um, people in your community who speak the same language. <clears throat> you know, oftentimes we see that, uh, oftentimes we find a barrier uh, between uh, kids and parents, which is predominantly seen in parents who have migrated and. Why this happens is because you know when kids you know when they come here with their parents, uh, here or any 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 uh, country maybe maybe uh, any country in Europe or America or Australia whenever um, a uh, family migrates to a different country, often it is seen that due to school, um, the children they pick up the language that is taught. And if we give the example of UK. Um, because English is taught over here in the UK, so they would pick up English uh, far more than their own language, uh, their own uh, mother tongue. Mm. Which uh, I mean, obviously, learning another language is good, but in the background, what is happening is that you know kids are slowly moving away. Uh, they are slowly forgetting the language and culture of their parents, and you know, and in this way, a a, a sort of invisible wall is being formed. Which, um, which I mean, obviously the the relation between parents and children is so important that if parents can uh, impart or pass on the mother language that uh, or the language that they they speak because when they pass on the language that they speak they're also pass, passing on a part of the culture that where they were brought up in and it's important for both children and parents to be uh, able to interact with each other and um, in a way where they can understand each other and of course, if they are speaking two separate languages, if the children are unable to speak the language of their parents, and if the parents are unable to speak uh, English or any language that their children are uh, able to uh, fluently speak in, then there can be a, a visible barrier. And of course, that is something which isn't, which would not be a healthy environment. So that's why I think learning your mother tongue is quite crucial for one, for you know, cultural identity. And uh, and for better communication as well. I think you've hit the nail on the head. When you you're going to be learning the local dialect, the local language of where you are in school anyway. Indeed. Um, and uh, we've seen that in recent years with the with the level of migration, a lot of people who who um, have a problem when they hear another language. Um, it's it's a it's a very popular narrative in people with um, with the um, populist and, and uh, far-right uh, mindsets that they always complain, oh, they couldn't speak English. Um, but what they, what they don't realize is that as a child, your brain is like a sponge. Mm. Mm. It will absorb, it will learn things Indeed. so much more quickly. Yeah. Um, and uh, I have a friend who speaks, uh, I think, six languages. Six languages. Um, not because they chose to, but because of their parentage. Mm. Different parents, different... Uh, um, one spoke uh, Italian, um, one spoke uh, um, was uh, North African, right. so they spoke. They speak Arabic, they speak 
uh, Italian, mm. but because of Italian, they're able to speak Spanish, Spanish as well. uh, yeah, and they live in England, so they speak English. With Arabic, they've learned different dialects. Yeah, mm. indeed. So uh, just because of that, they're able to communicate with people from so many different walks of life, yeah. broadens your horizons, opens your mind up mm. to new cultures, yeah. um, uh, new ideas. And from an Islamic perspective, I think one was to look at the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Yeah. Um, I remember um, doing an interview with the Imam of the London Mosque, um, uh, Imam Ataul Mujib Rashid. Mm -hmm. And I, I recall him mentioning when he went to Japan mm. and he didn't know the language. Yeah. And, but, by the, but, but, but he served there for seven years and he learned it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and because that was the local dialect, that was the that was the, the the form of communication that was required. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of our imams and missionaries from the Yamni Muslim community, mm -hmm. who have gone in different corners of the earth, yeah. um, uh, you know, they have gone and learned the language once they've got there. Yeah. So you know, it's it's it is it is important that uh, that so many different languages. Uh, are spoken. Um, let's go and talk to our first guest um, of the morning we have with us, Professor uh, Nicola McClelland. Um, professor Nicola McClelland is a Professor of German and History of Linguistics at the University of Nottingham. She speaks English, French and German very well and can say a few things in Chinese, Dutch, Swedish, Russian and Italian. She is in the midst of a small project called Nottingham in <coughs> Our Voices, asking local Nottingham people to share words from their languages and dialects. Good morning, welcome, assalamu and peace be on you, Professor McClelland. Good morning, very nice to be with you this morning. Thank you so much uh, for taking time out this morning and coming on to The Breakfast Show. I see you speak, you're, you're, you speak every single language that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. I'm quite old, I've had plenty of time. Amazing, it's amazing you can speak so many languages. Um, what inspired you to start working on Nottingham in Our Voices? Yeah, well, so we um, had a, uh, a World of Languages Museum come to Nottingham just for a week in 2019, not long before uh, lockdown, actually. And we had a load of interactive language-related exhibits, a bit like a science museum that you might know, but that were to do with language. And we were just so thrilled with how successful that was. But beyond that, the so many of our visitors came to us with a story. So if you ask them after they'd been to the exhibition, they would start to tell you about their own experience of a language somewhere in their background or their language learning experience. And people really wanted to talk about that heritage and share it. Mm -hmm. And we thought, great way to celebrate this and celebrate both uh, people who are multilingual and people who are might call themselves monolingual, but have a kind of a depth of a range of dialects of English as well that we don't want to lose as part of our heritage. So that's how I got to do that together with my colleague from Natalie Braber, who's at Nottingham Trent University. Dr. McClellan, the question comes to mind. You speak so many different languages. When somebody speaks to you in a different different language, do you translate it in your mind and then and then say it? Or is it something just naturally you go into that the mode of that other language? Um, you go into, well, I go into the mode. You know, if you're an advanced, learner or you've been doing it for quite a long time and in fact what often happens is I'm on holiday with my family mm -hmm. and I think I'm translating from German into English and all I'm doing is paraphrasing in German again and they look at me as mm. if I'm an idiot mm. because I haven't even noticed <laughs> that I'm <clears throat> in the wrong language so I think that answers your question yes. I don't translate yeah 
Um, Professor Nicolau, can you tell us about why is there a decrease in uh, multilingualism? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I guess if by multilingualism you mean um, the number of people studying languages to a high level in school mm-hmm. and university, there is a decrease. I would say more broadly, there's actually an increase in multilingualism because more and more people um, have another language in their heritage, certainly in the UK. Yeah. Um, but uh, coming to the question of why maybe not so many people are taking languages at, at school, um, I think there's a few factors that come together. Quite a few of them are structural. Mm-hmm. We have a system where you have to choose quite early. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult to do two languages now, and it used to be um, there's a real benefit from having learned one language. When you learn another one, you get an awful lot for free. It's a bit like doing two sciences or doing sciences when you've got maths. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a positive feedback cycle, which it's more difficult to get now. Um, you can only do three subjects at A level. Yeah. That's another structural factor. I mean, I'm an old, I'm an old boy, and I remember <laughs> in our in my days, a language was a must. It was compulsory. <laughs> Yeah, which has changed, um, and I think that that that's a that's a negative. I think that's a step backwards. I think so. I think it was well intentioned because it was recognised that some people, it just can't get a, a tiny proportion of people. I would say, yeah, can't really get on with language learning, or really would be better doing something else. But that is a very very small proportion, and that's the other point I wanted to make. I think there's a myth in well, I don't think I know. There's a myth in Britain that language learning is hard. And it isn't harder than any of the other things we ask kids to do at school. It's not harder than math. It's not harder than science. Um, it's not as easy as speaking your native language because you have to learn it. But um, it's very much something we can do. And the rest of the world manages to learn English. So I don't have a lot of patience with the, the argument that it's hard. But we do need to push against that because it's just so damaging to people's chances to do something wonderful and fun that lasts for a lifetime well they're learning other subjects so clearly the capacity and capability of learning is there so why Mm, not mm. apply that to the subject it's a subject of language Mm, mm, exactly so professor nicola from the point raised by my co-presenter should schools actively promote multilingual education to counter this um do you mean promote um, having languages available or promoting bilingualism? I mean, I think the answer to all of those yeah. is both. And certainly in the schools that I know in the region <laughs> in, in Nottingham City do a lot to um, support children who have another language, um, help them take exams in that uh, subject. That isn't as easy as it should be. Um, but I know there are some quite important initiatives to support that. So, yes, absolutely. Everything we can do that supports... Um, the the view that speaking or, or the, the experience that having another language is really enriching is all valuable. And uh, Professor, in uh, in a world where science, uh, technology, engineering, and mathematics uh, subjects are increasingly increasingly promoted, um, could you please shed some light on why languages is also vital? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. So. Science is important. It gives a lot of answers. It will give us a technical answer to a problem that we're facing. But to actually communicate the, that solution and to ensure that everyone accepts it and to ensure that all the ways of rolling out that solution to everybody who needs it um, are reaching everyone, you really need the understanding of other languages and cultures. Um, you know, it's great in a way that English has, in a sense, taken over the, the role of Latin, maybe half. 500 years ago it's the kind of the common language that everyone defers to 
but that's all one-way traffic. If you're just communicating through English, you're not hearing the, um, you're kind of losing the knowledge and the cultural practices that are perhaps embedded in the language that people actually speak rather than the English that they're using for their technical purposes. So we're losing an awful lot. Um, yeah. You know, to give a really simple example, um, vaccine hesitancy during the COVID epidemic. We had the solution, we had a vaccine, and a lot of people were very reluctant to take it. Explaining um, why a vaccine is a good and safe thing to do was hard enough um, for people, uh, for some people to hear, even in, their, in English if it was their own language. How much harder if you're trying to communicate to across the world, across all the different languages that we have? Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And um, just to, just to one point on that, um, we, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, we as Ahmadi Muslims, we believe that you know, the mother of all languages is, uh, so we believe is Arabic. And uh, the founder of our community, he said something very profound, which um, I would like to quote it. It's something I'm sure you would, you would uh, find this very uh, interesting as well. He says that the Arabic word for heart is qalb. Um, and which refers to anything that causes a thing to circulate. So he, he, he said that now we know that circulation of blood depends on the heart and uh, present day findings have only recently disclosed after a long period of effort and contemplation the phenomenon of blood circulation. However, in Islam, you know, the word qalb uh, uh, is already used for the heart and has mm -hmm. therefore not only alluded to this truth, but has safeguarded it as well. And, you know, I think... Yeah, um, so that is a great point. Um, and I would say you've given me an example from Arabic, but we could give you many examples from indigenous languages all yeah. around the world where there is knowledge about um, plants and, um, and animals that might be really important to us to preserve the culture or to discover new medicines. But and it is encoded in the language, and if those languages are lost or we can't access them, we're losing out on such an opportunity. Indeed, indeed. And uh, um, Professor McClellan, one final question: um, Any tips for people who want to learn a language? And what's your take on these apps that are <laughs> are, are, are you know guaranteeing you learn a language in x x x amount of time? Yeah, okay. So I would say a little goes a long way. Um, and I would always say to someone who's learning a language, don't look at the native speaker that you're not. Mm -hmm. Look at where you started and what you can do now compared to what you could do. Look over your shoulder and think of the progress you've made. So a little goes a long way. Um, little and often. And that is where these apps can be great. Um, in fact, if you'd rung five minutes earlier, I would have been sitting across the breakfast table from my husband who is uh, daily... Um, doing one of these apps uh, to learn Portuguese because he needs to go to Portugal each year for his work. Um, the way they're kind of gamified, that they keep you, um, they keep encouraging you and motivating you. For some people, that's a really great way of um, just making sure you do that little bit, little and often. Some people maybe don't need that. They are sort of quite habit-forming by themselves, but these apps can be great. I think they're variable in how useful the quality of language is. Hmm. Um, so my um, husband learning Portuguese is learning to say some quite strange, strange things, you know, like the, the elephant doesn't need its coat today. These are not the most useful sentences. <laughs> but, you know, any, anything is progress. And, That's it, uh, yes. He certainly is learning something. So, um, yeah. And I guess the other 
there are these days it's so easy to get a bit of extra access to language so whatever floats your boat you know if you like watching movies watch a movie with the subtitles on on tiktok um start following a few things in a different language with subtitles um music there are just so many opportunities to make it um fun and for you to get that sense of reward because nothing beats the moment where it's a stream of something or other that you can't understand and then all of a sudden a little word pops out and you're like, oh i understand that and you can't go back once you've understood you can't ever go back to that point where you haven't got a clue what they're saying anymore and that's just such a wonderful experience wonderful professor mcclelland thank you so much uh, for taking okay. time out this morning for the breakfast show um um i wish you a fantastic day ahead um and may peace be with you thanks pleasure to be with you bye thank you very much amazing isn't it yeah. so many languages uh, you know i was just counting there english <laughs> french german chinese dutch swedish russian and italian that's eight languages man <laughs> that's just that's like yeah i wish i think you're going to you know start downloading different apps <laughs> honestly i'm yeah. telling you uh, you know she's so right yeah. that uh, um, you know even learning a few words from an app yeah you, the point is you're learning yep the point is you're learning and and i always i'm in awe of people who speak different languages yeah because you know if if you know if think about it we're in london Yeah. and then you kind of you're looking and talking to someone then you turn right and you've got somebody else who speaks a different language and you're able to kind of you know a click of a finger your yeah. your change your <laughs> language changes and then what i always find amazing is when people's language changes the way they talk yeah. hand movements Indeed. come in the Indeed. way they and and they kind of adapt not just the language yeah. but but uh, the demeanor changes as well yeah. Yeah. it's it's amazing i i am i i always find it uh, fantastic when people when i meet people Yeah, who are uh, speaking different languages indeed because language also it carries the culture as well with that's it. right yes. so of course like we mentioned before the importance of lear- learning the mother tongue is that you're learning a part <laughs> of the culture as well yes most definitely we are coming up to the eight o'clock news we are talking about um the importance of uh um your mother tongue as it is international mother language day if you want to contribute give us a call 02086877878 or you can join us or comment um on our social media platforms at voice of islam uk we are going to go to the news and when we come back we will go and speak to our next guest um of the morning so do stay tuned we'll be right back after these brief messages you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed welcome back to tuesday morning breakfast show with myself kayu and brother jaleez and brother daniel we have been talking about international mother's tongue mother tongue mother tongue day which is today yeah. um Let's go straight to our next guest of the morning. We have with us Dr. Um Rados Voika. Good morning, welcome, assalamualaikum and peace be on you. Uh Dr. Dr. Rados good morning. is uh, good morning. Um Dr. Voika is currently a research associate at SOAS, um University of London. His main research interests are uh, in empirical and theoretical linguistics, uh, endangered and uh, minoritized languages information structure historical linguists um and uh, languages and romance languages he has an extensive work on endangered northwest oceanic languages with major contributions to the documentation of uh blablang my apologies if i if Bla- i miscorrect blablanga blablanga language uh, dr redos has uh, an ma in language documentation and description from the so from so as itself with a dissertation on aspects of 
Um, a Romanian, a heavily endangered Eastern Romance language spoken in the Balkans. Good morning again, and thank you, uh, Dr. Voika, for waiting um, and coming on to The Breakfast Show. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Um, besides being a means <coughs> of communication, what are the major advantages of learning a foreign language? Well, being able to communicate directly with speakers of a foreign language is a huge advantage, of course. Uh, but let me point out that language has multiple communication functions. It is used to create context to describe states of affairs, mental states. <laughs> it enables us to transmit emotions and to appeal to emotions, to engage with other people, either in order to transmit information or simply for the sake of interaction, as in socializing, you know. Mm -hmm. It is used to create metaphorical or poetic meaning. But language is not only a means of communication with other people, but also with ourselves, with our own internal world. Uh, we think using language, we reflect and take decisions using language, we store personal and collective memories using language. Uh, language is used to, collect, to encode culture to store it and to pass it on to next generation so to finally answer the question uh, learning a new language opens new horizons emerges the learning into a new culture and uh, enables access to a different way of uh, perceiving the surrounding world um, and that indirect yeah sorry sorry dr worker just one because you're talking about learning question comes to mind everybody talks about how if somebody wants to learn a language, they should really do it at an early age. That's really a myth, isn't it? Or is it more difficult to learn a language as you get older? What we're sure of is that it is easier easier to learn a language when uh, when you are younger. <laughs> Perhaps the younger you are, the easier it is. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it, it's kind of not a really that difficult to learn a language when you are older. I just think it depends on the motivations that... Uh, it's a desire, isn't it? Each wanting to, wanting has, to do it. Each individually has, yeah. So what are the consequences of multi, uh, multilingualism, multilingualism um, on society? I mean, is it... We say consequence. Um, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Mm. Well, uh, since we are uh, celebrating uh, Modern Language Day... Uh, Day and uh, we're um, concerned about language uh, preservation and the preservation of the linguistic uh, uh, diversity of the language. And uh, as, as I said, since um, learning a language is so important, imagine how important preserving one's mother tongue. Mm is because uh, when it's no longer passed to a, um, the next generation, then, you know, we lose an entire world, not only a language. Now, uh, it, it, it depends on how we define multilingualism here. If, if you mean, we mean global or regional linguistic diversity, well, linguistic diversity means cultural diversity, and we need those two as much as we need natural and biological diversity. Now, the terms multilingualism and multilingual are also used when talking about an individual or a group who have acquired more than two languages, say, or more or less in parallel since their infancy. In the same way, we use the terms bilingual and bilingualism for those with two languages acquired in infancy. Uh, bilingualism and multilingualism, in a sense, can be tricky on the one hand, they can be benefic, of course, 
because bilinguals and multilinguals have the same advantages as the foreign language learners discussed previously. Mm. However, it is true that political, social and economic factors, among others, come for more prestige to some languages and at the same time minoritize or endanger others. Being fluent in a dominant language may be regarded as a path to progress and often is a path to progress. Many times individuals or larger communities decide to acquire the dominant language. As they use it in more and more instances in contact with other groups, they may start to use it in other domains which were normally reserved for their traditional language. Uh, they may even start to use it at home, and this gradually may lead to the attrition of the mother tongue, which may cease to be transmitted in even one or two generations. So this is the detrimental effect of bilingualism or multilingualism. Uh, doctor, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Due to English becoming a lingua franca, uh, is there an acceleration in the number of uh, endangered languages? Uh, it is true that, <clears throat> I don't know, as a colonial language, English has threatened and led to the extinction of other languages, as in the case of, say, numerous Australi Australian Aboriginal languages or Native American languages. However, as the global language of, say, diplomacy, business, media, etc., which it is nowadays, I do not think that it alone can accelerate the process of language diversity loss. Uh, it's true that we are witnessing an unprecedented rate of language attrition. Uh, it is often stated that of the almost 7,000 languages spoken in the world nowadays, up to 90% are at risk, and most of them may disappear by the end of the century. But there are many local languages that are in a very strong dominant position, and in many parts of the world it is a major local language of some prestige that threatens small neighboring language rather than a colonial language. Of course, nobody can predict what is going to happen, and I guess we'll see in about 200 years if English manages to take over all the <laughs> remaining 700 languages or, that are still alive by then. Mm, yeah. Um, Dr. Rados, thank you um, for joining us today. Um, have a great day and a lovely week ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank Bye. you, Dr. Boker. May peace be with you, sir. With and with you. Bye. Let's go straight on to our next guest of the morning. We've got with us Professor Julia Salabank, who is a professor of uh, language policy and revitalization at um, Sowas University. Uh, her interest is endangered language revitalization, um, which started with her heritage uh, language. And please forgive me if I mispronounce this, is Gironesie um, in 2000. And... Uh, is spread worldwide. She teaches courses on language policy and planning, language, society and communication, and language documentation and revitalization at SOAS. Her most recent publication is Revitalizing Endangered Languages, a practical guide co-edited uh, with Justina Olko, which is also available to download free um, thanks to the European Union. Good morning. Welcome. Assalamu and peace be on you, Professor. Thank you very much. And uh, yes. Um, my, my language is called Jernosier, by the way. Jernosier. Jernosier. Let's stress on the first syllable, never mind. Okay. <laughs> my apologies. Um, no. Your research interests <laughs> focus on minority and endangered languages. Could you yes. please tell um, um, our listener um, mm -hmm. what language revitalization is? 
Language revitalization is trying to, well, literally trying to breathe life into, into a language which is um, un, under pressure. So to um, encourage people to continue to speak that language, um, to encourage people to try to reclaim languages that they haven't had the chance to learn. Because what we find very often is that um, people, it, people get interested in their heritage languages the generation after the generation that didn't pass it on, and they haven't had the opportunity um, to get to learn that language. Um, uh, I think often that language rights um, kind of forget that kind of situation where people haven't really had the opportunity to, to get in touch with their heritage and their, and their heritage language. Uh, Professor, what are the consequences for society um, if the current rich diversity of languages disappears? Um, I think society will be a lot poorer. Um, I have to say that I, I don't um, think we should just look at languages on their own in isolation because languages obviously don't exist if there aren't people to speak them. And I think that languages don't really become endangered or, don't, or people don't stop speaking languages if there isn't some kind of uh, um, in inequality or, or imbalance in, in the linguistic ecology. Um, you know, p- p- languages don't really become marginalized if the people that speak them aren't marginalized. So I think it's, it's a question of, of equality, of equal rights, of, of empowerment of people who speak minority languages. Uh, Professor, research shows that uh, multilingualism has many health advantages. Um, mm-hmm. What is the link between language and well-being? Um, you can look at it on an individual basis. For example, um, it's been found that um, being bilingual, being multilingual can increase your, your, brain, capa- your brain plasticity, um, uh, both at the beginning of life, but for children, for example. Um, children, we, we, uh, we know that children who are multilingual, um, this, this is particularly if uh, this actually has a, has a, has a social a, a political aspect as well, because the, the benefits of being bilingual are very much linked to the status of those languages in, in society. So if, you're all, if all of your languages are respected and valued, then you will get cognitive benefits from speaking those languages. Um, so children, uh, children whose home language is valued and taught at schools will do better in that language and in dominant languages, um, so the, language, the majority languages, and also in other subjects. Mm, also at the other end of life, it's been found that um, if you contract dementia, uh, if you're bilingual or multilingual, um, you can have up to three to five years more before your um, <coughs> symptoms really set in than, than if, you are, um, if you're not bilingual. So I that's see. a really big that's benefit. On a societal basis, um, what, what we're trying to do is turn around the attitude that, that lang- uh, minority languages hold you back, um, that you have to give up one language in order to learn a majority language properly. Because most people in the world are multilingual and have an infinite capacity for, for languages in our heads. Um, and um, if we value our heritage, languages and cultures, um, then, then I think it's much more benefit to us and society as a whole. Indeed, indeed. Uh, <coughs> Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, have a great day and a lovely week ahead. Well, thank you very much indeed. And you too. Thank you. And may peace be on you. And you too. Thank you. Um, we need to conclude this uh, segment. We are playing catch-up, but uh, um, you know, I wanted to finish uh, by playing a small 
um, audio clip of the fourth caliph of the Amdi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on his soul, um, when he spoke on the importance of learning your mother tongue and, and speaking it at home. So let's go and listen to what His Holiness uh, said. Now, as far as, far as Urdu is concerned, I do not mean that Urdu should be forgotten or neglected. Somebody, if somebody thinks this is the instruction, he has completely failed to understand me. What I say is, in formal meetings, in official functions, it is the right of the people of the country that their language must be the official medium. And that would be so. In your homes, you must teach your children Urdu. If they have an Urdu background, they must teach their children Pashto, if they have a Pashto background. They must teach their children Sindhi, if they have a Sindhi background. Because the languages are custodians of culture. And the cultural pull here against Islam, Islamic way of life, are so strong that and so disguised that you do not know that they will ultimately pull you away from faith and you permit your children to be carried away. And because they do not know their own mother tongue, which is mostly Urdu, the result is that uh, they don't know their background, they don't know the same literature. Not only there is a lack of uh, their understanding of their cultural background, but also a generation gap is created, which is uh, extremely detrimental for a progressive cause. Many generation gaps have occurred in Europe and in the Western world in general, but they don't care. Each generation gap created a new style and introduced a new style in culture and uh, loss of values. So if you study the last two, three hundred years of uh, European and Western history, you will come to notice that generation after generation they stepped down in moral behavior because there appeared to be gaps between older generation and new generation and nobody cared. But in a progressive community who has a message to deliver to the world, who has a future to look up to, generation, generation gap will work as poison. If your children do not feel belonging to you, then they belong to the surrounding atmosphere which is very toxic, then you begin to notice in their eyes an attitude of alienation. They're your children, but you know, you, you, you feel in their, your heart that I have handed my children over to some other people. They no longer are mine entirely. So the parents get extremely panicky. I receive panicky messages for prayer sometimes during my contacts with the families. Some mothers cry that something is happening to our children but they do not know that that had happened to them first. They did not care for these things. They did not uh, plan in time. Not only should the language be guarded and, and taught to the younger generation, but also something of the past experiences should be shared. And there we had uh, His Holiness, the fourth caliph of the Promised Messiah, Hazim Zatahir Ahmed. May Allah have mercy on his soul, keep telling us um, why it's so important 
to learn your mother tongue. But we are coming up uh, to the next segment. So before we go into it, we're going to take a very quick break. Um, please go grab yourself a cup, a cup of coffee, a toast. While you're at it, send me one. Um, you know, I like uh, some some you know uh, some avocado on it, chili flakes. Ah, man, I'm hungry. But we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Allah, Allah, Akbar, Allah, Akbar. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting on DAB and via the internet, twenty-four hours a day. عن عمرو بن شعيب رضي الله عنه عن أبيه عن جده قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إن الله يحب أن يرى أثر نعمته على عبده It is narrated by Hazrat Amr bin Shuhayb رضي الله عنه from his father from his grandfather who reported the holy prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم stated indeed Allah loves to see the results of his favours upon his servant. A new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the Voice of Islam. Welcome back, Tuesday morning breakfast show with myself, Kayyum, Brother Jaliz, Brother Nanyal. Um, we are going to go on to our second segment, which is folic acid requirements for expectant mothers. If you are an expectant mother, give us a call 0208-687-7878. Or if you have knowledge on this um, on this topic, we would love to hear from you or share your comments on our social media platforms. Um, the government across UK has decided to introduce new laws requiring the food industry to add folic acid to non-wholemeal wheat flour. The goal is to reduce the rate of neural tube defects in babies. A study in the in, in the Lancet in 1991 showed that taking a daily four milligram folic acid supplement reduced neural tube defects in infants by around 80 percent. That's a whopping figure, 80 percent in a UK trial. Um, so what we're going to be talking about is what is folic acid and what are the benefits of this vitamin for our bodies. Uh, gentlemen, who wants to take that on? Uh, don't all rush to this straight away come on guys <laughs> so uh, BBC published this news that uh, folic acid in flour can prevent birth defects is uh, too low uh, scientists say and uh, they said that leading scientists say adding higher levels of folic acid to all flour rice flour and rice uh, would stop hundreds more UK babies being born with long uh, with lifelong disabilities um, when we talk about um, what folic acid is um, and what the benefits are for our bodies uh, so basically folic acid uh, also known as uh, folate or vitamin b9 um, is a water soluble vitamin that plays an essential role in various bodily functions it is particularly important for the production of uh, dna and cell growth uh, making it crucial for the development of nervous system in fetuses and infants there's one point I wanted to make. Some um, our listener might be thinking, why in God's name are they talking about folic acid on breakfast show in the morning? And and as much as you know, one can have a laugh on certain things sometimes. But mm. the importance of this topic is there because Islam is a way of life. 
Indeed. Yeah. Islam is about pres- uh, uh, no, um, um, preserving life. Mm-hmm. Islam is about moving forward. Science and Islam mm. are intertwined. Yep. A lot of people in this day and age separate the two. They're not. Mm. If this uh, research, this element um, of, of, of discussion and, and, uh, and these experiments and these, um, these findings are there um, to improve the quality of life for a newborn baby or a mother, yeah. that's Islamic. That is just naturally Islamic. Yeah. That falls within, um, um, falls within the realm yeah. Of of uh, of what Islam is a way of life. Islam is here. Islam promotes whatever makes life easy. God Almighty has said yeah. that uh, Islam has been brought to the world to to make your life easy. Yeah. So, yes, you know it's strange. Three guys sitting here talking about um, folic acid. I'm an old boy. My kids are old. You guys are young fathers who to be. Yeah. This will be relevant to you. This is something you can talk about when. You know your uh, respected partners are are expecting and whatnot. So, you know, it, as much as uh, um, um, you know, it is the, the morning time, but it's a relevant topic and it is yeah. very relevant. Everything that we talk about, all aspects of science, development, research, yeah. progress, is Islamic. Yeah, indeed. Because each and every life is uh, sacred. Yes, in Islam, without a why, doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Um. Before, you know, we get into a discussion about this, let's go and talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. We've got with us Professor Dominic Wilkinson, uh, who specializes in newborn intensive care as a consultant, neo, neonatologist um, at the John Radcliffe Hospital. He is also director of medical ethics at the University of Oxford, um, uh, where Hero Center for Practical Ethics. Good morning. Welcome. Asalaamu Alaikum and peace be on you, Professor Wilkinson. Good morning. Um, thank you for taking time out and coming on to the breakfast show, sir. Um, what does folic acid affect, um, or how does folic acid affect the development of a fetus in pregnancy, sir? Well, folic acid is a vitamin that uh, helps our cells to to grow and reproduce, uh, in particular, and the the DNA the genetic code to be formed in new cells. It has a crucial role in the very early stages, very earliest stages of the development of a fetus, particularly affecting the development of the spinal cord and the, the, the backbone. So the, the problem is that if mothers at the time when they conceive and in the very earliest stages of pregnancy are low in their levels of folic acid, that that increases the risk of a very serious, uh, though uncommon, birth defect called spina bifida. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Professor, what doses or in what potency of folic acid are required for for pregnant women, and uh, when is it most vital for uh, mothers to start taking it? So the important thing to know about folic acid is that this is a vitamin that's present in our diet, but that many of us don't get enough. And in particular, for women who may become uh, may become pregnant, um, that is, it's quite difficult to get enough from your diet. Mm-hmm. The, the other important thing to know is that 
to have the best effect to prevent these really serious problems for the baby, you need to be taking it before you become pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, lots of women, of course, take supplements when they know they're pregnant. But by the time that women know they're pregnant, they're usually one or two months pregnant. Um, and so mm-hmm. the, it's, it's very important for women who are trying to become pregnant to be mm. starting taking folate supplements before uh, they start to try to become pregnant mm. um, uh, and that's indeed one of the one of the reasons for talking about wider supplementation for example in flour mm, yeah certainly are there any risks uh, associated with taking too much folic acid um, during pregnancy and if so how common are they so, so folic acid, the levels that are recommended for taking, there are two different levels. So there's a regular amount of folic acid mm-hmm. that every woman who is trying to or who could become pregnant is recommended to take, which is 400 micrograms per day. Mm-hmm. And then there's a higher dose of folic acid that's actually about 10 times that dose that's recommended for women who are at increased risk, particularly who might have had a baby with spina bifida in the past mm-hmm. or who are on anti-epilepsy medicines, that they need to be taking a higher dose of folic acid. Um, taking those, those types of doses um, are not at all risky for the mothers or for their babies, indeed quite the opposite. So the, these... Uh, doses of medicine <coughs> dramatically reduce the risk of uh, this rare but serious birth defect. I uh, see, I see. Uh, doctor, um, just one more question. And uh, what sort of diet uh, do you, would you say that uh, possess um, folic acid and is good for uh, providing folic acid? So you can get folic acid in a wide range of green leafy vegetables, uh, grains, beans, um, uh, but it is difficult to get enough from your diet alone. Um, and we know that that uh, that many women don't have enough folic acid in their diet. That's the reason why the UK um, has introduced a relatively low level of um, fortification of white flour. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but there is a, a discussion about whether actually they should be adding more folic acid and more broadly. For example, there are lots in our community who don't eat lots of white flour or bread, uh, regular white bread, uh, but might eat, for example, rice or whole meal, whole wheat flour, which doesn't contain any extra folate in it. I see. <clears throat> so, um, Professor, um, as you mentioned, that it's the you can't get enough folic acid from diet alone um, in, in some cases. But is there um, any need for taking supplements then to um, to help? So, this is exactly the reason why all women who are trying to become pregnant or who are who know that they're pregnant should be taking uh, a folate supplement. Um, designed for for women who are who are hoping to become pregnant, um, uh, and that they should take that from before the time that they become pregnant. 
indeed, indeed. And um, should there be greater transparency and public involvement in the decision-making process for folic acid uh, fortification? So it's, it's an interesting question. So one, one fairly shocking thing is that the UK is uh, several decades behind other countries, for example, the US and Canada, where they have been adding folate to the flour for several decades. Actually, in the UK, um, vitamins have been added to flour since the Second World War. I see. Um, iron, calcium, uh, and a, uh, vitamin B1. Um, uh, but folate wasn't introduced. In, in the US and Canada, they saw a halving of the rates of spina bifida, the serious birth defect, when they introduced this routine supplementation of flour. And for a very long time, the UK has been lagging behind. It has only very recently added a small amount of folate just to white flour. But there is a, a case that that is uh, not as high as it could be and that we will still not prevent as many of these serious birth defects as we could. I see. I see. Um, Professor, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, have a great day and a lovely week ahead and peace be upon you. Thanks very much. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. And uh, that was uh, um, Professor Wilkinson shedding a light yeah. on uh, uh, you know, this important topic. And <clears throat> apart from food for physical health, you know, we talk of... Uh, all these different means to ensure that um, childbirth is smooth um, and, and God grants all parents healthy children. Mm -hmm. um, physical health it plays a huge part uh, um, in, in Islam. Yeah. But uh, apart from food for physical health, prayers and good morals uh, from a mother for her baby are also very important for the spiritual health of her baby. Most certainly. Um, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, praying is something that, uh, you know, children tend to kind of learn or, or, or from a parent point of view, the part and parcel of the parenting is when the child is born and then you... Whereas parenting starts when the baby is in, in, in the womb. In the womb. Yeah. Indeed. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, prayers is part and parcel of the learning process and um, when you're praying to God Almighty yeah. um, and, and everything you do every um, action you take as an individual or as a mother who's carrying this child um, everything that affects you has a direct yeah. impact yeah, on the baby that you It just reminded me of the, of the incident of um, the first caliph of the Amdi Muslim community mm -hmm. um, he says that uh, on one place says that when I was in my mother's womb, I can hear the voice of um, uh, reciting Quran while I was in the, my mother's womb. So wow. yeah, we can understand how it is important, how much it is important uh, while the baby is in the womb to take care and uh, um, to seek uh, the relevant uh, things. Well, this point is, is you know, um, also made by the, the point you just made as was highlighted by the second caliph of the Amdi Muslim community, the promised son, mm -hmm. Hazrat Mirza Bashir al-Din Mahmud Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on his soul. He explained 
that the moral training of a child begins before birth. Yeah. Um, he said prayers for the spiritual and physical well-being and development of the child are extremely important throughout pregnancy as the fetus mm-hmm. is undergoing um, wondrously complex changes, growing and developing to its final form. One should pray that child has a pious nature and bestowed with a healthy and prosperous life. So in addition to taking care of her spiritual and emotional well-being, expecting mothers have to take care of their physical health mm. and be sure to have a nutritional diet, exercise, and to rest well. And that word, exercise, mm. is very important because that's going to be our final topic of the morning, <laughs> which is, it is about um, sports, it is about um, women's sports, yeah. um, and uh, it's about how important um, women's sports, and we talk about women's sports, and people automatically think, well, what's, what's Islam got to do with women's sports? Because mm. this notion, this mindset people have uh, in, in the West that, uh, you know, women are kind of caged away in the home. They're not allowed to do anything. They're not allowed to come out. They're not allowed to take part in activities, mm. which is a myth which mainstream media kind of ties to, you know, exploit and, and promote falsely. Yeah. It's fake news. Fake, fake, fake news. <laughs> um, you know, there is no um, there is no religion, faith, way of life out there that puts women on such a high status, such a high platform. Indeed. Then, um, and and the, the, the amount of love and respect that given to womanhood in all forms than the religion of Islam. It is something we're going to be talking about when we come back. We're going to take a quick break. Um, and uh, so do stay tuned. Um, you know, I'll take one sugar. No, not really. <laughs> we'll be right back after these brief messages. Allah, Allah, Akbar, Allah, Akbar. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. A new station, The Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with The Voice of Islam. Welcome back to... What is it? What day is it today? Uh, my age is showing. Tuesday morning. <laughs> yeah. It is Tuesday. Tuesday morning. Breakfast show with myself. My name is Kayum. Yes, Angelis and Daniel, and uh, we are talking um, of <clears throat> the final subject of the morning, which is celebrating achievements in women's sport ahead of the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup. Gentlemen, what's the quick? Uh, who wants to take this on? Uh, both arguing now, and uh, you take it. No, you take it. No, come on, come on, Jalees. Uh, <clears throat> so the gist of the story is uh, so aspirations of women and girls have allowed there to be much success in women's sport, uh, especially in recent years. Uh, 2022 in particular, so last year, is regarded by many as being a monumental year for women's sports. Uh, in this segment, we will be discussing the difficulties faced by women in sports, as well as take, uh, talking about recent achievements in the field and highlighting exciting events to look forward to this year. Mm. Well, you know, you have to give them credit. Yeah. 
you know, we've been talking about this is 1966. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay, I'm not that old, all right? I wasn't around in 1966. Looks like... <laughs> oh, my God! Look at that live on there, slap on the face. <laughs> but it's okay, you youngsters. But the ladies did bring it home. Yeah. You know, you can't, you, you know, whether whether you are into the sport or not into the sport, they kind of did what the men have been talking about forever, mm. probably will be talking about forever when they'll carry on the way going. But, you know, there, there are a lot of challenges. Um, but from a personal perspective, I think sometimes the challenges, um, we tend to go down the wrong route. Mm. Women's sports, sports is important. We've spoken about how important exercise and sporting uh, is, sport, being sportsman. Uh, the sportsman spirit mm. is very good to learn. Yeah. It, it develops and enhances your character. But I think we, in this day and age, we tend to go, we seem to think that men are in competition with women or men or women are in competition with men. There's always a, a if you're, you're a, you know, it's it's a comparison. Mm. It's two different things. Yeah, certainly. It is two different things. And, and again, that's another program <clears throat> to be had. Yeah. But what happens when you go into these comparisons is that you lose the focal point of uh, kind of challenging the difficulties within mm. uh, the, the sporting arena that women face themselves. Mm. It shouldn't be, oh, the men have it, so why don't we have it? Or they can do it, then why can't we do this? Mm. That's something you get to once you have kind of overcome some of the hurdles mm. of sportsmanship and women's sports within itself. Yeah. Um, and you know it's it, and again it's a, it's a it's a personal opinion but but i think that um, that uh, uh, there is th there is a long long um, way that women's sport has come yeah. um in in respect of being recognized uh, for the capacity for the capability um um and and uh, uh, the ability and they've done that by showing you know especially within the united kingdom you know cricket um, World Cup, football, yeah. European Cup. Um, it's 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 something that um, I think doesn't get recognised enough, um, and uh, and 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 it should be recognised, and which is why we are kind of looking to highlight it um, uh, this morning. And moreover, it is directly linked to spirituality as well. It is. Yeah. But I want you to hold that thought because I want to go to my first guest yeah. um, for this segment. We've got with us Stephanie Hilborn. Um, who is uh, um, a major environmental... Um, Steph, she is a member of the major environmental charity and, and has won significant environmental policy change. Uh, Steph joined Women in Sport in 2019. She was uh, determined to apply her leadership and advocacy skills and passion to advance the cause of girls and women in sport. She knew that her own sporting experience had given her the resilience to lead in different situations also, that most girls did not get the opportunity that she had. Um, Stephanie, good morning. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Um, good morning. Assalamu and peace be on you. Thank you very much. It's great to be back with you. Thank you for inviting me in. No, thank you. Pleasure for having you here. Um, how can we motivate girls who are currently disengaged from the sport? Well, it's interesting what you've just been talking about, in fact, because I think we need to sit away from that. As you've just said, this, mm. the, we're, we're not usually putting enough value on girls and women as playing a sport. And we're, from the moment a girl is born, 
we are tending to surround them with the expectation that it doesn't really matter if they do play sport and that, in fact, it's more important that they're kind to people and that they look right and that they don't, you know, we tend to say be careful to girls a lot. We 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 still haven't got away from that that stereotypical mindset, have we? Not not in reality. Exactly. No, exactly. We're just about to release some more research on that. The stereotypes are still really strong. Yeah. So the girl, you know, we, we all love our children. We want to do best for them. But we do tend to instill in the girls that they might sort of break if they try and run or, you know, they're not going to be active. And, and actually, as you've just said, uh, girls, like boys, thrive from playing sport in every <coughs> part of their lives in terms of how well they do at school, how how happy they feel, them to the mental health, and also really important aspects of physicality, such as the building up of bone strength, which mm. is of course such a critical issue in later life. And discipline, so, yeah, and and discipline. No, all the sort of skills you learn to to push yourself, to lead other people. I mean, all those things you see as you talked about cricket, you mm. you can build particularly from team sport. Yes, is something that our girls have been missing out on really badly and still there's the biggest gap between girls and boys is in team sport it's strange you you talk about uh, the reason i mentioned the stereotype the the stereotypical behavior because i'm I'm going back what nearly odd uh, 15 odd years i remember when both my children uh, my daughter and my son did taekwondo and nobody everybody were like wow your son's doing taekwondo fantastic and then i said well so is my daughter what you don't why are you making your daughter why are you making your daughter do taekwondo it was the terminology yeah. the words and it was funny because my daughter got her black belt before my son did and he was like oh my god isn't that i mean doesn't that put your isn't your son worried and i was like no because they're two different individuals <laughs> they're two different human beings they will yeah. achieve what they want within their time but so that's so interesting because it, it, that goes back to the fact we expect boys status to be improved that's if they're right. good at sport exactly. and and so it's so interesting that that's what we see being the big problem on the playground as soon as they go to school is because the girls and the boys have been brought up to think if they can't go to school already able to kick a ball or throw a ball that they're going to not have the status then the girls get on the playground they have to kick them out because they've got to prove their status yes. you know so you have all of this this aspect to it which is fascinating to say about them thinking you'd made your daughter do yeah taekwondo <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? Rather than expecting her to. Exactly. That's it. You know, yeah, she did great, didn't she? In fact, in fact, I mean, I can say my son was motivated by the fact that the way his sister was achieving that it it, mm. it kind of worked the total opposite the way the way people had expected. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, this interaction between siblings, isn't it? Yeah. That, I used to play sport non-stop with one of my brothers and there was no sense that there was any issue in that at yeah, all. Definitely. Um, so, no, it's great. It's great you did that with your kids. And I think what we're passionate about is that we surround girls from the moment they're born. I mean, at the moment, we literally, the moment they're born, a midwife will pass a baby to the father and say, I'm sorry, you can't play cricket mm. with her. Um, you know, it literally begins from then. And so we surround um, girls with the right expectations and we, we will get this problem starting to be sorted. Although there are then other layers that we need to take away, um, sort of the expectation of the clothes they wear, even the shoes mm. that girls wear school discourage being active. Um, and And also, you know, it's quite interesting at, at school now, there's less, Singles. I mean, we haven't got the data on this, but we're hearing anecdotally there's slightly less 
uh, single-sex provision for girls, which is important for them. So, um, yeah, there's lots of aspects in young life that are really, really vital. Mm. And uh, so the next question would be, what may be um, some reasons why girls are uh, quite inactive uh, compared to boys? Well, you've kind of covered that, haven't mm. you? And what you said, I think it's not innate. There, there are innate differences between the sexes. And I only recently learned that, that boys go through a mini puberty at six months and have a little surge of testosterone, which mm. means that there isn't a, it isn't a total myth that boys rush around slightly more than girls, but it's a very small percentage difference. So it's not innate. It's, it's all about the stereotypes and expectations that are around them. And, uh, and, and that's why. So, you know, they're not innately less active. Um, and, and so if we can lift both the subtle stereotypes that we're, which are all pervasive, like we found out at school in general, if they do play sport, a boy will get more praise from the teacher than a girl for the actual shot or pass or whatever it is, partly because the teacher thinks, I've got to encourage him because, you know, it's about his status. So the whole thing kind of falls into a... Um, into, into this pattern. So you've got to cut through that, become aware of it first of all, and then and then help parents and teachers and everyone around the kids to to stop um, burdening girls with these expectations that stop them being active. Um, Stephanie, so talking about COVID-19, how has the outbreak of COVID-19 affected um, women's participation in sport? That's a really interesting question, and it it was very, very interesting in the pandemic how it affected men and women differently in general. Um, obviously, at the early days, more men were actually dying of the disease, which mm. was was terrible. But when the economy crashed, it was in sectors where women were had high levels of employment. So more women lost their jobs straight away in travel and hospitality and things like that. So there was that change. And then more women were expected to do the homeschooling when the school shut. So to some mm -hmm. extent, that um, affected, it definitely affected women's and men's lives differently. In terms of exercise, there was a bigger drop-off in boys' activity because they had been playing more organised team sports. And there were some benefits to, say, teenage girls who we saw started to go for long walks with their friends rather than just sitting around. Mm -hmm. So that was that was good. But the leisure centres are where there are exercise classes or swimming pools uh, were obviously then uh, closed for periods and that negatively affected women. So it was a very complex picture. And, uh, and, and at the elite end, as you'll have seen, you know, the elite uh, women's sporting events were, were cancelled much more readily and quickly than the men's and took mm. longer to get back on track again back to this point about value of the sponsorship deals and broadcasting rights and everything else but so it was a very complex picture i think that on the upside the reconnection with nature and the taking of walks across the board was a good thing mm. um, but it overall led to a lot of issues that were negative in women's lives you know the things like domestic abuse and and that sense of being trapped um, were, were negatives, but then on the upside, there was more connection with nature. So it does depend on what where you sat so, socially, in the how much money you had to do things, um, whether you had nice green areas near you. So there are lots of layers, very complex. Um, Stephanie, within the, the the religion of Islam, as as you know, against myths and 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 a lot of mainstream stuff, um, physical activity for men and women is encouraged 
equally. Um, I mean, yes. in, in yes. fact, over the weekend gone, we actually, the, the, the Women's Auxiliary Organization um, had an international volleyball tournament from teams from Canada, America, Germany, Belgium, all over Europe. They came and, and, uh, and took part and, and Canada won the tournament. It was an international tournament. Do you, wow. think, do you think that within the sporting world, more focus is, more, uh, ha, is, is given to the fact that there is this disparity between men and women rather than focusing on their sporting, sporting achievements within themselves, that, that we lose Absolutely. focus? I think, I think you're right. I think what you said before I came on, it's very powerful, this, this, um, this need to get away from comparison. Yeah. And I think, you know, even in terms of, I mean, I know a lot, talking to some of my son's friends, they were saying, but women's basketball isn't as good. And you're saying, well, it's women are shorter. You know, they are not quite as strong and fast. It's a slightly different game when they're playing. Yeah. But their achievement is just as good and just as amazing. And so there's this, there is, you're, you're, very, you're very right there. We do need to see things differently and value the achievements that women and girls make. Because I tend to find um, that these comparison actually is damaging to women's sport. I think it can be damaging. I think... Where we're talking about a comparison of investment, it's important. So if there's public money being invested in sport, then half should be invested in women's sport. So mm. things like that, I think it's, it's powerful. Let's not accidentally only invest in men's sport. Let's, let's think about that. But then when you're comparing the end point, that's sometimes unhelpful. I think you're absolutely right. And it, it, it takes you away from... It focuses on the outcome, the actual action of putting a ball in a net or rather than on the person and the experience that they've been going through and what they've achieved as a person. And that's where the focus needs to be, in which Most case definitely. you need to look at it you know, differently. Most definitely. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking time out and coming on to The Breakfast Show this morning. I wish you no, a fantastic day ahead. May peace be with thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank Bye you. Then. Let's go straight on to our next guest, uh, Professor Angus Hunter, um, who is um, Head of Department of Sports Science at Nottingham University and Professor in Neuromuscular Physiology. Um, good morning, Professor. Thank you for coming on to um, The Breakfast Show. Um, Professor, what does neuromuscular disease um, and how does it disease affect the body? Do we have uh, Professor Angus Hunter? Hello, yes, can you hear me? Hi, sorry, Professor. Um, very briefly, I'm afraid, because we're, we've, been, uh, we've been trying to play catch-up, my apologies to you. Just, I can only ask one question. How does uh, neuromuscular disease affect the body? We've, uh, very quickly, sir. So I think what you're talking about here is not neuromuscular, but neurodegenerative disease. Okay. That can happen from hitting footballs, is that right? It is, but, Professor, I, I'm going to... Yes, hello, Professor? Hello, yes. Yes, hello. I think uh, there's uh, we're having a, a problem on 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 the line um, with uh, in connecting with uh, Professor Angus Hunter. My apologies uh, to Professor Angus Hunter um, because uh, of the shortage of time as well. Um, um, we were playing catch up and uh, we didn't manage to get the information uh, that we that we really wanted uh, to hear. And I'm sure we will go back to Professor in due course. I just want to thank all of our researchers and producers for taking time out this morning um, and, uh, and, and guests and to all of you listeners uh, for listening. Um, 
Thank you to um, Barira Shamsi Ariba Chaudhry Nuzat Zafar, um, to Ishe, um, to Ine Ayman. Until we meet again, <coughs> may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.